Uh, welcome to this episode of the Better Goods Podcast. I'm speaking to, to Jamie Catherwood, a, a generally interesting person who writes and about financial history on the internet. In his day job, Jamie is client portfolio uh, associate at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. Uh, hi, Jamie. Nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you. My first question to you is: Why is financial history relevant to investors? Today, a skeptic might say, well, that happened so many hundred years ago. Why should I care? Yeah, so I think that there's a couple different ways to think about history and its applications today. And I think that, to your point, people who would say that about history, you know, what's the relevance of something that happened hundreds of years ago to today? It's definitely not relevant in terms of, you know, oh, you know, manufacturing stocks did badly coming out of the 1929 crash. So that means every crash today, I'm going to not invest in manufacturing stocks. Like that's not, it's not kind of, here's how you can trade perfectly based on what happened in a previous crash um, because things are never the same there. So that in that perspective, history is not very useful if you're just trying to like kind of match one-to-one previous events to modern events. But what history is useful for, I think, is noticing what trends and patterns kind of consistently reappear during specific market environments. And most pertinently, I think just understanding human nature and how little that changes, it gives you kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess a more humbling view of the markets because it's easy to think that we're much more sophisticated than the investors on the Amsterdam stock exchange in the early 1600s. But all the evidence shows that we are not, despite having much more sophisticated technology and uh, financial instruments. The TLDR version of, of, of why we haven't changed, what are the common characteristics of investors over time? Uh, chase money, chase returns, and look to get rich quick without any effort. Um, that could basically sum up 400 years of speculative bubbles. Um, in a sentence there, even if you just look at the reporting of contemporary writers at the time of some of these bubbles stretching back 400 years, they all could be written about something that's happening today. You just have to update the old English into kind of modern, modern parlance, but um, it's the same things. It's all just about people missing out on a great investment that generated massive returns for the people that saw an opportunity early. And then the people that missed that opportunity want to kind of replicate the gains elsewhere and find the next hot stock or investment. And so they heard into that next best thing. And then that's how you kind of get bubbles start to form. And so, yeah, the, the too long didn't read is just Every, every reason why we have bubbles and manias today is the same reasons that have plagued markets for 400 years. Speaking of bubbles today, there's one view on, the, on, on, on Fintwit that goes on the lines of um, the bubble today is unique because it's been propelled by massive amounts of central bank expansion. And my view is very much the, the opposite of it. But across history, how have these sort of monetary policy changes affected bubbles? Or are, are we just imagining things here? Uh, I mean, I think today might be unique in terms of the scale, but definitely throughout history, 
almost every time there's been a period of bubbles and excess speculation, it's been driven by cheap money and low interest rates. Um, one of my favorite quotes from um, a 19th century newspaper writing about a speculative bubble at the time, the, the journalist wrote that with good information and cheap money, a man can be bankrupt in a week, which I think is still apt today um, when it's easy to get money and there's an abundant supply of it and it's cheap, then there's not much preventing you from trying out new strategies and risky ventures to make money. And there's kind of less of a risk to doing so. And so the comparison I've made recently is that while we don't, well, I guess now we do, so I'll have to update this, this analogy, but until now, and still it's different, but throughout history, almost every bubble in like the 19th and 18th centuries was basically the product of an expensive war in Europe um, ending. And then the government, usually the United Kingdom, realizing that they have a ton of debt that they raised to finance the war, but now the war's ended and they still have all this debt that they need to pay, pay investors and pay the bondholders um, coupons. And so they come up with innovative schemes to kind of get out or reduce, get out of or reduce those payments. Um, and so you have some examples of like the South Sea Company and that bubble was the product of the British government trying to convince its bondholders to exchange the UK government debt for um, South Sea Company stock in an attempt to lower the amount of debt servicing payments that the government would have to make. And following these wars, the government would lower interest rates, which would fuel speculation and bubbles would form. And so today and in the last two years, it's been a pandemic instead of a war, but some of the same principles there apply. Um, yields are near zero, rates are near zero, and there's an abundant supply of money, and there's been no shortage of speculation as a result. Speaking of wars, you know, last time the Western world had a total war was 1940, 1939 to 1945, but, but, but really in America, it picked up in December 1941. During those times, you have high levels of financial repression. Almost all credit and economic activity is directed towards financing the war for obvious reasons. How should investors invest then? I think that during periods like this, it's a case of you don't want to, you want to respect the markets and acknowledge that there are major events going on that will impact markets for sure but you also don't want to kind of overreact and do anything drastic, um, you know? So this is not the time to, you know, take a huge speculative bet and, you know, go buy Russian stocks because they're cheap, um, <laughs> because they're cheap for a reason, but also it's probably not a wise move to like move to hundred percent cash because you're worried about how the conflict in Ukraine will play out. And so I think during these times, history shows that you just need to make sure you're doing extra due diligence and really making sure that what you're, whatever you're doing in terms of your portfolio management is a rationally thought out decision rather than just a reactionary kind of reflex to whatever's going on because you're just kind of nerves and reptile brain is taking over and you're just exhibiting signs of fight or flight 
I I more or less agree with your answer, but I'm always worried that uh, because you've lived in the UK and the US, two capitalist democracies that that have survived the uh, various wars, I think that that this answer reeks of survivorship bias. What would doesn't doesn't almost all existing research on fan, on financial history um, get reduced in its importance because to some extent you just don't count the Austrias and Nazi Germanys where the returns end up going to zero and you know I feel that this is extremely underrated when talking about fight or flight responses. Yeah, I think I mean I think that's true to a certain extent. Um, I also think that there are not as many examples as like so the Soviet Union is an example of stock exchange shutting down for something like 75 years after the Bolshevik revolution in 1917. So it certainly happens, but I think that in this day and age, it's just much easier to be broadly diversified across many markets and geographies. And so the odds that someone, I guess, outside of Russia, especially being invested in like a hundred percent Russian and Ukrainian stocks is very slim. And so while there's certainly survivorship bias in the kind of stories we tell and the broadly positive spin we put on those because we're focusing on the survivors, I think that just as markets have evolved and it's become easier to diversify your portfolio, it's reduced some of those risks of you know, being 100% exposed to one of the not surviving um, examples. And you know, I don't think today there's many people, again, who would be 100% exposed to Russia. And so something like this happening tanks their whole portfolio. Surely some Russian in investors must have had that. You're no, yeah, I said, I said outside of Russia. Oh, my bad. <laughs> Missed that. Um, speaking of portfolio, di- uh, international portfolio diversification, why does the home country bias exist? It's a very puzzling bias, especially today when, when you can internationally diversify at the, at the, at, at one click, right? Uh, how, how has this changed through history? It hasn't changed this. I don't, I can't speak to the history of the home country bias specifically, but what I do know is that humans have always just bought what they know. And so I think that's a large reason of why home country bias exists is because people buy the stocks of companies that they know and uh, operate in their country. And throughout history, time and time again, human um, humans have shown that they will continue to just herd into what stocks they know and what stocks are popular. So one of my favorite examples is um, in the 1800s when stock ticker, the machines were kind of uh, spread out across and became available across a broader range of states. You had basically a state bias, um, home state bias, where even though the ticker um, information being streamed from the stock exchanges now to various states further away from the stock exchanges had access to a broader set of information now because of the ticker. The traders and speculators that were using this ticker to buy and trade stocks were still basically just herding into the 25 most popular stocks nationally. And so just because they had access to information on a broader set of stocks, that didn't mean that their portfolios became more diversified. They just kept going into the most popular stocks as everyone else, which um, back when Robinhood still had that 
um, whatever that tool was, the tracker where you could see that kind of what the most popular the stocks trending on stocks Hood. thing. Yeah. What the most popular stocks on Robinhood were, you could see just so much of the daily trading activity occurred in a small subset of names, despite the fact that today you could theoretically, you know, buy from thousands of stocks that people aren't just talking about and are trending in the news every single day. But we like to buy what we know and we like to buy what other people are excited about. A lot of financial history relies on, uh, I would say, case studies as an anecdote. What is the most counterintuitive case study you have seen where the results of it, where, where the lessons from it are the exact opposite of what might think on the first glance? That's a good question. I'm going to say we'll come back to that because that, I'm racking through in my head like 400 years of history. Locked and loaded. <laughs> I'm sure I'll remember one throughout the podcast, but I say let's come back to that one. <laughs> You read a lot of, you reference a lot of academic finance in your newsletter. Academic economics and to an extent finance also is often criticized for being too theoretical, like, like, all, like lots of academia. What's your take on that? Do you think the academic finance community, the, the, the academic financial history community meets up to the standards of what investors need? I think so. I mean, I think that they're two separate fields. So that. I mean, the academic finance community isn't writing for investors and investors when they publish market commentaries aren't writing for the academic finance community. And so I think that they're just two distinct communities. And so it's important to acknowledge that. But I also think that a lot of the, almost all of the articles that I link in my newsletters and use to kind of inform my research process are all people, all professors and academics that have done a great job of kind of relating modern market developments um, back to whatever historical research they're focusing on. And one of the things that has made me kind of happiest about this whole investor amnesia um, kind of project and growth of this company or brand, whatever you want to call it in the last few years, is that it's served as the kind of meeting ground between academic finance and investors, because I think, as I said a moment ago, they are two kind of distinct communities that don't tend to overlap as much, but they can both learn from each other. And whenever there is a kind of diffusion of ideas across those two communities, then it leads to interesting insights because each one has a valuable perspective to offer. And so it's been fun for me to kind of make connections between the academic and professional investor um, communities and see what kind of things uh, the two groups come up with when speaking with each other. How do you do your literature review? Every time I, I, I try these things, it's just some combination of clicking through links on Google Scholar till I find the one paper that, that explains it. Is there a trick to this or do you just keep turning rocks till you find something? Um, it depends on... So sometimes I'll just come across an interesting looking article and I'll read it and link it other weeks, um, especially like last week um, where I focused my Sunday reads on the Russia and Ukraine um, crisis. Then um, it's just some fancy Google searching um, and knowing how to search efficiently on Google for specific papers. So um, 
it's kind of a blend of a process, but yeah, there's a lot of opening up tabs and reading abstracts to make sure that I'm finding the most useful paper for um, subscribers to the Sunday reads. Are you a tab junkie? What's the median number of tabs you have open at any point of time researching this? <laughs> Uh, during Sunday reads time, when I'm cramming those, uh, it could be easily up to like 50 tabs or something. That's why you need multiple monitors. <laughs> um, but usually I'm not a, a tab junkie because uh, uh, Google Chrome tab junkie uh, leads to very loud computer fan. <laughs> <laughs> you should use you should use Brave. But anyways, besides my besides that. What's your writing schedule like? Do you do you write multiple posts in advance, or do you just no. uh, or, <laughs> that'd be or nice. like? <laughs> what's that process like? <laughs> um, it's it's a lot of manic writing on Saturday mornings. Um, so the Sunday reads is uh an interesting process. It's it's really good when there's a week where there's one kind of major headline or theme because then it's obvious what to write about but one of the kind of interesting i guess is the right word for lack of a better term struggles over the last two years with the sunday reads has been that it's just kind of been a lot of the same story just what's going to happen with covid and the economy what's the future look like and also there's a bunch of speculation and weird assets and so it's it's been kind of exhausting to write about speculation and bubbles for two years but that's been kind of the only news that's gone on and so when that happens it can be a little what am i going to write about this week um but and so on those and those weeks it's kind of saturday morning trying to figure out what to write about and have an interesting angle on some kind of sub theme in markets from that week and then it's like i don't know five or six hours of reading and writing and cramming and then getting up early on Sunday morning to make sure what I wrote on Saturday makes sense and edit it and then post and then post and then publish on Twitter and then transition to watching Spurs hopefully win their game, whoever they're playing that weekend. Yes, I, I absolutely love football nights on Twitter because it means that I understand nothing on the internet and I can go do something actually useful instead of refreshing my screen every 30 seconds. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but more, but um, did you think about content distribution deliberately when when you started off writing? How did that evolve, or was it just that things became popular and you uh, let it go? Yeah, I think um, I definitely. I've, if that's something that I've started to think about more over time as investor amnesia has fortunately become more popular. Um, but at the beginning, I definitely didn't think about any of that at all. Um, I just kind of knew that medium was a place that you could write and post articles. And yeah. so I started writing my articles on medium and then eventually people started to suggest that I really needed to get a website, which I always agreed with, but the problem was I didn't know how to build a website. And so then um, one of the nicest people I've ever met, uh, again, through Twitter, where I feel like most of my meaningful connections in this space have come from, um, this guy, Adam Collins, reached out to me and said that he could basically build the website for me. Um, and that was, I don't know, almost, I guess, more than three years ago. Um, and 
Adam built the best website I could ask for. Um, and Adam and I are still very close. He helps me with all the launches for the investor and media courses and updates to the website and helps me think through a lot of the kind of strategy behind investor amnesia. Um, and so definitely, uh, owe a lot of the kind of thinking and strategy behind my content distribution to, to Adam. I think, yes, a slightly different track. I want to go on. Um, we hear a lot of investors complain about how, about how the regulations are stifling them, especially with regards to crypto and the securities laws. What have been the most important set of regulations to developing financial markets? We never hear this side of the story. I think one of like the really good regulations um, in markets has been the standardization of um financial statements among companies and standardizing prospectuses because it's almost impossible to think about the fact that um, in like the 19th century investors were not able to get access to a company's financial statements across the board just for every company that was listed on the exchange you had such a smaller set of information to go off of it would just make investing so much harder and there were not rules and regulations about what you could put in a prospectus and so if you look at some of the prospectuses from the 19th century it's just crazy to look at what they were putting in there um i mean there were just promises of returns ridiculous assumptions and there was no regulation against that and so they got away with it and so i think that's one of the unsexy but important um, regulations that has definitely helped investors because it just ensures that the information they're getting by and large is accurate and it's standardized so that you can compare it. Um, you can compare companies against each other. Speaking of 19th century America, what is that place in time unique in having so many panics and crashes or was it, a natural fact of a developing economy. I think that, I mean, it's definitely a unique period in how many bubbles and kind of crashes there were because I think it was the sweet spot of not enough regulation yet, but a rapidly developing stock market. Whereas in the 18th century, the markets markets existed and there was certainly a lot of activity on stock exchanges, but it wasn't as kind of dominant as it became in the 19th century. And also it was a time before the federal reserve, which was founded in 1913. And so there were just a lot more kind of, there's a lot more seasonality around the crashes because a lot of it just related to kind of gold flows and harvests and crops come and do in fall. And so financial markets kind of each year in certain seasons would be more fragile. And so then when a big bank or big company failed, usually the big company being a railroad and that took down a bank with it or a trust company, then markets were already in a fragile state. And so it just made it, made it easier for markets to crash. Um, and eventually it was in 19, even though the fed was founded in 1913, the 1907 panic was kind of the, I think, last straw that led to the creation of the Federal Reserve, because that was an example where um, 
1906, the San Francisco earthquake uh, occurred, I think in April of that year. And there was a weird dynamic where basically for some reason, over 50% of all the fire insurance firms in San Francisco were British. And so when the San Francisco earthquake happened, the, um, the most damage was actually done by the fires that raged in San Francisco and basically burned for just four straight days because the earthquake had taken out the city's uh, water mains. So there was just no way to put out the fire. And so the fire like destroyed most of San Francisco, but people didn't have um, insurance for it or they didn't have insurance for the earthquake. And so they only had fire insurance. And so what people would do is if their house had been burned or if their house had been destroyed by the earthquake they would just set it on fire so that they could try and get the fire insurance because earthquake insurance wasn't a thing yet so long way of saying that the san francisco earthquake and subsequent fire led to a massive amount of liabilities and insurance um, payments for these british fire insurance firms and so after the the fire um, kind of subsided and the British firms had to pay out these claims. The British, um, the British had to send, I think, I think the stat was like basically 13% of their national gold supply to San Francisco to pay out these claims. And so um, after they sent out 13% you know, of all of their nation's gold, then they dramatically raised rates and that led to kind of knock-on effects in New York and other financial centers, which made markets even more kind of unstable um, than they already were and helped kind of trigger the, the panic of 1907. And after that, just kind of seeing how fragile and susceptible markets could be to something like a natural disaster, like an earthquake, and how this could just have a knock-on effect of one country having to deplete so much of its gold supply and then raise um, their interest rates in response and that having an effect on financial markets elsewhere. It just kind of was the last straw that made American officials think we need, we need some better solution than just leaving the kind of economy susceptible to these swings in gold reserves. I've I've read this paper you're 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 referencing here. It's an exceptional paper. While writing investor amnesia, have you ever felt things were too obvious and your readers would probably know it? Because I've thought about writing this, but in the communities I'm in, everybody knows about this, so I feel there's no point to writing about it. Has this ever happened to you? Uh, I'm sure it has, but I guess that if I'm writing it, I probably didn't think so. But maybe the people reading the paper think that it's uh, it's pointless for me to write something like that. But I don't know. I mean, there's always going to be. Some, I just think back to when I was a history major and wanted to get into finance, but I hadn't had any background in finance. And so those types of articles and teachings that might seem obvious to someone that's in markets is there's going to be someone out there who's trying to learn more about investing that needs the kind of easy explainers and kind of narrative driven descriptions of a topic or theme. And I think that the, the articles will always serve some purpose. And even if you already know something, I don't think that means that you can't find reading about it interesting. Otherwise, we wouldn't all read the amount of investing and finance content that we do. 
Well, that's that's fair. Good motivation for me to start writing about things again. Then, um, I have a question about for you because uh, about Asian financial history, right? Japan was the first Asian country to modernize. You've had a few articles, one or two, across last two or three years about it. Is it very hard to find information about Japanese um, financial crises and so on in English? Um, there is, and I mean, so you also had, uh, what I'm not going to pronounce it correctly, but like the Tokugawa shogunate, um, which lasted from 16 something to I think 1868 something. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was 18, cause that's when the, the Meiji revolution happened. Yeah. Yeah. The, and then there was like the restoration period, but, um, so during that period, that is when, the Dojima rice exchange developed, which was fascinating. I wrote about that recently, but apart from that, the, during that shogunate period, they, the kind of Japan shut itself off from the rest of the world. And so there was not as much kind of, uh, economic and financial history to write about just because they were sectioned off from the rest of the world. And so there was some interesting internal developments, like I just referenced with the rice exchange, but, um, in comparison to the developments in Europe in that same time period, it was just not as robust because of their decision to just kind of cut themselves off from trade with the rest of the world. Um, but it's a fascinating country. And I've written also before about the uh, story of the founder of Nomura Securities in 1905 and his massive short and successful short bet against the Japanese stock market, which he thought was overvalued. Um, he has a, he has a, really interesting story um he when he was starting up the business used really interesting tactics like getting um female phone operators to sound very uh attractive over the phone in in an attempt to uh influence his male brokers and traders to trade more <laughs> basically like, to try and impress the female operators so just these kind of like little psychological tricks he used mm-hmm. to uh to boost business uh smart guy <laughs> very smart no but i think a lot of modern japan at least after 1900 or so is very under the the normal example is another one but also the collapse of sugar prices led to the showa financial crisis in 1927 or 28 and you know japan had its with the bank-related relationships. So when you talked about railroads collapsing in America, I thought, oh, well, and then the and then the, 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 their main banks falling. It was very interesting that in Japan, this sort of thing existed till the 90s, till you had, you know, various competition from China and Southeast Asia catching up, which, which led to it breaking up. Across history, you have these sort of bank-dominated systems like the U.S. was before stock markets got got big and how, you know, China is today and Japan was maybe 40 years ago. How did these compare in terms of financial performance for investors over these sort of market-dominated systems, right? The theoretical arguments you can make either ways about it. 
Uh, I'm not sure I understand your question. It kind of cut in and out there for a oh, second. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, how do these bank-dominated financial systems like China today or the U.S. when you know uh, J.P. Morgan was was at its at its at, at, at its heyday or Japan 40 years ago compare in terms of financial performance for investors as compared to today's American securities-based um, financial system? Uh, you know, to be honest, I haven't thought about that at all. That's an interesting question. Um, and one that I'd need to kind of think about more to give a better answer. Do you have any thoughts? I think the, a bank-based system definitely leads to, it depends on your, on, on your level of development. Securities markets are messy. And the messy part is just that you people, because it's distributed, there are a lot more mistakes, but just the fact of large sample sizes. So if you're looking to grow very, very high, very quick from $2,000 in GDP per capita to 50,000, on, on a policy level, it makes a lot more sense to have bank-dominated systems. So that, that somewhat naturally evolves in like America because you know you need a great level of trust for these sort of uh, bond markets and stock market. And then that just isn't, isn't there when you're, when you're relatively poor. And so far, investors, only a few countries can, can, can listen to this. Even if you look at emerging markets, Today, like if, if you look at India, if you look at the Philippines, the one or two companies that basically dominate the entire thing because you know they're the national champions, either backed by the government or so famous that that everybody knows who they who they are, and they have no problem raising uh, capital on the markets. So, from an investor perspective, if you put your your money, uh, if you can own the, the securities part of the banking system, you of the bank-based system, you'd be very, very rich because you know you it's 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 basically getting like a percentage of the GDP of this country every year. But in the in the long run, this is going to catch up to you because one of the nice part of securities markets is transparency. And a good anecdote about this is from India where for various regulatory reasons, the bond market hasn't developed as much. And so large Indian companies prefer to raise money abroad. The problem which happens is that everybody else borrows from banks. And banks, you know, especially state-owned banks in India had the habit of just not recognizing their uh, their bad loans and that and that led to some one point of time where no new loans were being made because they didn't have any money to make them. And so India got a University of Chicago professor Raghurajan to deal with all this. The problem is with these bank sort of systems, you're basically relying on these 20 guys in the finance ministry and the and the and the and the top banks to do their due diligence. And at some point of time your your political and economic elite become corrupt enough that this never happens. And with stock market, you know, you're gonna have somebody who some some guy who who says the king has no clothes a lot faster than a bank system. So I think yeah. while for rapid economic growth, the bank system is, is a lot better. But if you want to have sustainable things, at least after you start getting rich, you, you've got to transition to a um, securities-based system just for crisis reasons. Yeah, I think, well, that's also part of the reason, um, to your point about um, the panic, I think, was it the panic of 1901 or 07, where JP Morgan coming in, in to save the system? Yeah, and then yeah that's the, what I the, thought. The Fed. Yeah, and then uh, I think people realize that this is not a good system to kind of rely on one <laughs> one incredibly rich man to solve the financial system. <laughs> Probably need to figure out something more sustainable. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I, I, I completely agree. But it's also one of those views that's 
very much orthodox in the in the sense that if you pushed people's assumptions, they would admit they believe it. But it's also a view where where it's it's not obvious enough that people admit to believing it at their first try. On that line, what is the belief that that you disagree with 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 most of your contemporaries or your or your peers? In financial history or just anything? Finance or maybe even financial history, but even general advisors appreciate it. Um, hmm. Give me some really good questions that I wish I thought about beforehand instead of on the spot. <laughs> um, oh no, the point is to see just like how you react to it. If I, if I gave it to you beforehand, you would have a good answer, but it wouldn't be very fun in the conversations we had. Yeah, I, so I guess this isn't history focused, but I think to your point earlier about why write about something, if it mm-hmm. seems obvious, I think that I would take very... <laughs> very much the opposite um, stance where I think that I could have easily said, you know, there's no way that I'm going to be able to teach anybody. Again, I have a history background. I had no formal financial education, still don't. Um, And so it would have been very easy for me to say, there's no way I can teach anyone that's reading these articles, that's a professional investor, anything about finance. Um, like, what am I going to teach someone on Fintwit that's been in markets for 30 years about finance? Um, and so it would have been easy to just say, I'm not going to do that because how could I be of any value? But again, there's always going to be something that you can teach someone. And so I think that just finding whatever your niche is, or even if you don't have a niche, just publishing your opinions on things. It's no one's going to just, I mean, there'll be some like trolls that will give you a hard time, but by and large, people will always want to read about something if they're interested in it, regardless of whether they think they already kind of know everything about it or not. And so I think that um, not writing or posting about something or not, kind of putting yourself out there just because you don't think it will be of any value. You don't really know until you try. And so I would just encourage anyone who thinks they have an angle on something or wants to start a podcast or write about XYZ to just do it because I definitely originally only started this whole process because I kind of missed the process of writing and researching. And so I just wanted to write articles for my own kind of enjoyment obviously i wanted people to read them but i wasn't expecting really anything and now three years later there's a website newsletter online courses etc and so you never know kind of what will happen and the same thing goes for reaching out to people um i don't do it as much anymore but when i first started on twitter i was (laughs) i was one of the i would say (laughs) reply guys mean not reply guys necessarily but if you had an open dm then i was going to be sliding into those dms and you uh you never know who will respond as long as you're kind of polite courteous and respectful of people's time and don't assume that they'll talk to you and if you're just like aggressively polite (laughs) the way i like to think of it then you can you can get some really cool conversations um but some I, people, I think, also feel like they won't have something valuable to add to that person. And so they just don't reach out. And you never know. I mean, I had one friend I from a cold direct message. I 
um, I guess again, like three years ago when I was just starting on Twitter, I messaged Jason Zweig at the Wall Street Journal because I knew he was interested in financial history. And we ended up speaking on the phone for like an hour. And Jason said, good friend now and fellow financial history geek. And that was from a cold DM. And then I think maybe a year later, I had a friend who's in the financial Twitter sphere who's going up to New York. And I said, I was offering to introduce him to people and set him up with kind of lunches, coffees, et cetera. And I said, oh, I could set you up with Jason's why I can see if he'd be interested in getting a coffee. I'm sure he would. And this person responded saying that, you know, they didn't feel like they would be worth Jason's time. And so like, they, they didn't want me to make that introduction. And to me, it just blew my mind. Cause I, <laughs> I was thinking, I'm telling you that I can set you up for a coffee with Jason's Zweig, And you're telling me you don't want that. And again, I think just people kind of prevent themselves from getting interesting opportunities and exciting opportunities because they think that they can't add value, which is not the case. And I think people should just go for whatever their, whatever their kind of dreams or goals are, instead of just assuming that they can't do anything of interest or value and never starting in the first place. Yeah. I think I've been guilty of this. I mean, I've been less guilty of it than I, than, than I scold myself for, but probably more guilty than my idealized version of myself. But yeah, I think too many people are, are guilty about it. My last question you're good you, at it. You, I came on this podcast because you tweeted me saying, do you want to come on this podcast? So yes. <laughs> no, <laughs> You're I, doing true, a good but... job. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the Twitter spam filter has been the biggest source of lost opportunities in my life because I DM people, but it ends up in spam and I, and I tweeted them. And they're like, oh, you DM me six months ago. I never knew that. It, it was stuck in spam. And so it's so disappointing. But on the other hand, I, I can just tweet at them like, like I did to you. So. Yeah, exactly. No. Last question for you is um, what advice, you, you've already given some very good advice, but what if somebody wants to work in finance? Is What advice do you have for um, somebody wanting to work in investment management like you do? Where should they start? Especially if they if they look at Fintwit and they say, oh, I, I like what these guys are doing. I mean, to the extent to which it's a representative a sample, which it is not, but you know, yeah. if they look at it and say, I, I like the, I like the vibe of this. How do I start working on it? Um, so I'd say broadly, if you're looking to get into kind of investment management, two pieces of advice would just be consume a lot of content and research what you don't understand in that content. So the way I first got into um, kind of investing and learned enough to get my first job because I had a history background from history major from a British university. Uh, I was not exactly the, the target demographic for finance companies, um, target applicant, but well, the way I went college, about it was, right? yeah, which good school, but, um, <laughs> it's just when you're applying to American finance jobs and uh, they're going through a C going through a sea of applicants with finance majors and business majors from well-known American schools. It's, I think it was like a double-edged sword because it was obviously not what they were looking for, but it also made my resume stand out more because they're like, you know, a British degree and a history major, like how did this get in the stack? <laughs> and so at least it made them pause on my resume and kind of read it more because it just was definitely not, uh, not the standard resume they were looking at. But 
the way I kind of learned enough to get my first job was just by listening to my now boss's um, podcast, Patrick O'Shaughnessy's Invest Like the Best podcast, and just kind of writing down the terms I didn't know, and then researching them and learning what they meant. So I mean, like the first podcast I was listening to in college, I was like, what's a price to earnings ratio? I have no idea what that means. But like one of the guests is talking about it. And so then go on Investopedia, look up what PE ratio is, learn, and then just keep doing that enough. You'll be surprised kind of how quickly you can pick things up. And so that would be my first piece of advice. And then second is just cold outreach and network as much as you can. Because especially when you're young, people will remember when they are, people remember, people will remember when they were in your shoes and they were young, breaking into the industry and people want to help young people by and large. And so again, as long as you're polite and respectful and grateful for whatever time they give to you, or even if they are just too busy, just always be polite. But um, those kind of opportunities to network and learn from people with experience are invaluable. I think that's the best part of Twitter. I've been, I've been, I've been fin Twitter, I've been on the academic economic side. I've been on weird, weird ends of it. I think overall, <laughs> the nice part of the internet is that you can self-select into communities that are filled with you and people like you. So it's one of the most underrated ways of improving your life. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. Okay. On that note, um, thank you so much for coming. I love talking to you. Yes. Thank you, mate. Uh, come back anytime. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you. Yeah.